Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favorite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish dash tech dash news. Hi there, welcome to today's Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Lyric Jane, CEO of Logibee. How are you doing, Lyric? I'm all right. How are you? Good, thanks. Now, before we start, tell us a bit about your, about your background. Um, uh, well, I was born in India. I uh, lived the first half of my life there, so 12, 13 years I was there. Moved to the UK uh, with, with my family, studied engineering, and while studying engineering, interesting things were happening in the broader world that, that, that led me to logically. Um, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm an engineer by training, but always excited by uh, entrepreneurship and startup life. Say, um, have my have, have, currently have my first flirt with entrepreneurship with with Logically. And tell me, how did Logically start, and what does it do? Uh, we started in uh, 2017. There was really probably the events of the year before, uh, two years before that, that led me to. Um, I think it's a series of really strange things, particularly in, in my personal context. I think in 2015, uh, my grandma came across a bit of health misinformation. Uh, it was really rubbish stuff saying, hey, drink the special green juice, give up your cancer meds and you'll, you'll live longer. And she unfortunately fell for it and we lost her a bit earlier than we probably should have. And in 2016, it was the two big geopolitical events of, of the world. Um, my circumstances around Brexit were perhaps quite quite unique. Uh, my hometown in the UK is Stone, the the highest Brexit voting town yeah. in the UK, and where I was at the time was Cambridge, was the highest Remain voting town in the UK. So there, two groups of people I was closest to had very different views. Were getting very different information on social media and on their news feeds, and had a great degree of uh, misinformation. And that kind of experience repeated itself when I was in the US later that year, and um, it led me to think that surely there must be something that technology, AI, and a bit of kind of human expertise could, could be able to do in this space. And I started work at C-Cell and empty um, MIT Media Lab to think of potential solutions and with enough encouragement and support, let, let's uh, logically. And today we combat misinformation, disinformation, and other types of harmful content uh, online um, at scale uh, and further in, in, in many countries. So we work in, with uh, everyone from individuals to governments and platforms to uh, give them ways in which they can identify all of this harmful content and activity and give them ways of responding to them, either be it through uh, fact checks or through some kind of enforcement action. Sadly, every day, you mentioned earlier about your grandmother and the cancer thing. Every day I'm seeing adverts online about these things and they're not, they're not true. And also I'm seeing one all time about Bitcoin. There's software you can buy that, that, lets you, uh, that says you can invest in Bitcoin. And it's always so many famous involved, a photograph of them and a TV show saying how they made the money. And if you spend money in this within about two hours, you'll be rich. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's outright fraud. So that, that's, that, that's one side of the spectrum. There's just content and activity outright that, that's pure fraud. Then there's some stuff that's more clickbaity in nature. So it's it's for profit driven, but it's it's the clicks where they make the money as opposed to the actual fraud. Yeah. And then finally, there's some of it that's kind of geopolitically and socioeconomically motivated. So across across a wide scale, we, we have a lot of poison and vitriol online that we, we need to 
get, 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 get our handle on. Yeah, because for me right now, thinking back in, since 2016, the last two American elections and Brexit campaign, the vote has been seen, this information occurs, so you be told one thing and not, uh, that you're told is true. And then by the time you find out it's fake news, it's too late. The vote's been done. Yeah, and that, that, that's one of the big challenges with uh, disinformation in the current age, right? Because it's already always existed. There's always been false information propaganda. But I think the, the, the speed at which and the scale at which it spreads online, is it just means we need to respond to it a lot sooner. Uh, otherwise, people make decisions such as voting or whether to take a vaccine or not or whether to go down the street and burn your 5G tower or not. Um, and they make it on the basis of this really emotive, super viral information that them and the people around them believe in. Um, so, yeah, yeah, huge, huge challenge. Because um, at the moment we have in Ireland, people are, are, are online complaining and saying that 5G has caused coronavirus. Well, there's no proof of that. And then they're saying other things like, oh, you, you don't have to wear a mask. It's proven not to work. Yeah, it's it's this kind of anti-science movement uh, that, that's out there that's led by a lot of conspiracy groups. What, what was interesting about COVID, especially in the early days, was all of them su somehow kind of coalesced, reinforced each other, yeah. and spread each other's messages. And it ended up being this one big unified conspiracy movement against the science behind COVID and the science behind vaccines today. So I think we, we the, the big failure from the last year uh, around COVID information online was that we, A, we were very, very slow in getting out good, reliable information. And the other, we didn't stop the recruitment into these conspiracy groups. Pages, websites, social media channels that had tens of thousands of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers ended the year with millions. And only only very late on uh, did the platform start to take some enforcement action on all this. For me, what's scary is you get somebody who's a doctor, a professor, who apparently is anti-vax groups, and it turns out they got a doctorate, not a real doctor, or a professor of something like geography. Nothing that's that relates to what they're talking about. And, uh, and people are, oh, they're doctors, must, must be true. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, that's why these conspiracy movements are so strange. Uh, it's quite difficult to fact check them as well, because they have this whole alternative referencing material from kind of so-called experts who really aren't experts in those fields, as well as literally books and books uh, that people can refer to that spread this old law. Um, it, that, that, because of how deep-seated these things tend to be, and they have this hierarchy of information, kind of the most recent topical news article, all the way going down to a book five years ago, that was mentioning how 5G was, was going to be used to control people, etc., and linking that to some silly mind control experiment book. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's how these conspiracies build credibility within their own circles. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that is, is, is very detectable online. I think we, as a, as a, as a community, as, 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 as stakeholders, governments, private sector, need to come together and decide what is permissible, what is safe, what is illegal. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those conversations are happening very, very slowly right now. Now, when it comes to 5G, for example, 5G, you could get cancer from, from the mass spin nearby you. That we don't know that fully yet, but what we do know is it does not cause COVID. Yet everyone assumed that because of that it's COVID, and I'm thinking, wait till they get 6G. What are they going to say when 6G comes comes online? <laughs> it's going to say it causes whatever the big crisis of the world at that at that point is. Um, yeah, it's, it's and there's there's Bill Gates. He wants to put in microchips in everyone and control them and track them and monitor them, which again 
it's it, it just completely bizarre stuff. Uh, who would have thought that that theory that 5G causes COVID was going to be more popular uh, back in back in April last year than the one about China and, and uh, about that being a, a, a virus that originated from the Virology Institute, which still is, is somewhat debunked, but not fully debunked. It's still an investigation that's going on. But that's a, that's a somewhat believable conspiracy, yeah. whereas this is just completely ridiculous, um, and, but more people seem to be attracted to it. It reminds me of that. There was a joke in round about COVID, and it said COVID is a movie directed by, a, by Brenton Tarantino, co-written by Tarantino and Stephen King. Because we don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh. <laughs> some of the stuff that Stephen King written in the past, he wrote a movie years ago, which was about basically uh, vehicles coming to life and and uh, and technology coming to life and controlling the world back in the mid eighties. It was called Overdrive, and he just and it was basically something that was so bizarre. But looking back now, these things are now can be more believable because of what's going on with COVID and what's happening next. No, we, we don't know what the next big crisis is, but certainly, again, there there will be chatter around around that that is misleading. That'll lead us to make bad decisions. Uh, that'll lead people going down a very very wrong route. And even COVID isn't done right now. The whole vaccine drive is at risk in so many countries because of hesitancy that's being driven by misinformation. Uh, again, what we found is that the the, the narratives that tend to be the ones that people that resonate with people the most aren't the believable ones, aren't the fact that hey, this this vaccine could have been rushed, hey, it happened in so little time. It's the it's the narratives that say Bill Gates is injecting you with with microchips. So those reach more people, those are believed by more people, which is which is which is the slightly worrying thing. How have we allowed people to be this far radicalized? And is there a way of bringing bringing them back into normality? Yeah, and especially when you think of certainly different vaccines in the world. How could Bill Gates be involved in all of them? Especially in Russia with Sputnik, for example, how is you going to get? How are they going to allow an American to put market chips in those? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking. It's, it's what, not very well written. Yeah, well, I'm looking in the, in the in the past year, we've seen a lot more, and also we've seen uh, the the rise of QAnon, and how has that become harder to police? Yeah, QAnon's this really weird movement. It uh, again, we've been following it for a few years, but probably more intensively since since COVID. Because pretty much every COVID conspiracy was swelling around the QAnon drain. Um, eventually, it all, all, all roads pointed back to QAnon. Um, it's, it's a strange one because it's one where platforms have cracked down, at least from a policy point of view, quite quite strictly on. But even if you look on Facebook today or Twitter today, you will find a lot of big Q influences and you will find a lot of QAnon content. Yeah. I think some of the enforcement steps that they've taken are obviously welcome because it, 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 it's driving down some of this conversation and it's making their platform safer. But in a, in a global context, it, it, all that's making their platform safer, it's taking the conversation onto deeper, darker places of the internet where the platform who owns that space isn't necessarily aligned to uh, a, a, a safe uh, internet and isn't necessarily aligned to kind of democratic values. So... It's very hard to, well, it's still, we can still go about identifying that type of content, but it becomes very hard to do anything about it because we're not working with somewhat well-intentioned entities. We're working with rogue actors online uh, who want to spread this havoc. So that, that's been the big challenge. I think deplatforming has turned a lot of these Q influences into 
digital martyrs yeah. and has kind of increased their following, not on that platform, not on a Facebook or a Twitter or a YouTube, but on some random platform on the internet. Um, very worrying, which is, again, a reason why we, we, we just need to have a better handle on what proportionate and effective response to these things looks like. Sometimes, yes, there will be cases where deplatforming is super important and is the best solution, but in a lot of cases, it will be things like just labeling stuff, throttling stuff, as opposed to turning people into these digital martyrs. Well, for me, what's scary is in the past five years, we've seen governments in the world, like in America, they elected Trump, that uh, the, the president of, of Brazil, you've had stuff that's going on in the UK to do Brexit, and all these things basically have come in a time when QAnon has got more prevalent because they've been spreading and peddling stuff that we now know isn't true. Yeah, the, the, the QAnon is, is, is something that originally was an American-only thing. But the way that Q, QAnon has been exported to the world and has been made to fit whatever the local context is, whatever local politics looks like, is scary. It's They, they are effective, like super, super effective marketers. The, the way that we, we, we kind of call it narrative localization, and it's communicating a narrative in a way to that particular city, to that particular country, or to that particular demography in a way that they're likely to believe it. And they've been very successful in recruiting followers in the UK, in Germany in particular, uh, but also in Japan, which is so politically disconnected from the rest of the world that Q still found a way of, of getting in there. But what scares me is when you get something like, like Brazil and uh, maybe America, the fact they've had a lot of cover cases mainly is down to where they've been governed. And the governments there in the past kind of believed in, in a lot of what Kunan were saying, which is scary. Yeah, well, we, 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 we have kind of people in Congress in the US who are, who are active Q believers. So it's, it's um, the, the US government came close to labeling it a domestic terror organization. They haven't formally done it just yet. But there's no reason to, to kind of wait on that any, any further. The events of Capitol Hill were directly caused by QAnon. Uh, they, were, they were caused by, not the protests, everyone's allowed to protest, but the specific intent by a small group to not just protest, but to break into what's supposed to be one of the most secure buildings in the world. If that doesn't get you up on that on that list, I don't I don't know what does. And the worst thing is when they then go and say blame on a, an Antifa or somebody else when everything is pointing towards them. That's the scary thing right now. You're going to get scapegoats come out of this. Yeah, I I, I, I think it's it's deflecting blame is is somewhat natural when it comes to if if if, if someone believes in in Q as opposed to other conspiratorial uh, ideologies online that they are always going to point to people who believe have infiltrated Q and are there to dis discredit Q, etc, etc, and not going to point fingers in all kinds of directions. But I think it's it's pretty clear based on evidence, we have evidence that a lot of people have to suggest that it was the, the key QAnon influence community that was uh, responsible for uh, a large part of what happened on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and for me, the biggest thing for the moment is social media and the role that social media and blogs play in spreading misinformation, and what do we do to combat this? Yeah, it's, it's, social media is, is, is like, back in 2012, when we were looking at it, it, it was this big beacon, this, this, this tool for democracy, because it, it, was, it was leading to things like the Arab Spring, etc., and everyone around the world was shouting from the rooftops around, hey, social media is great, and right now we're in the exact opposite state. I don't, I don't think it's as, as, as kind of, binary is that. I, I think that there's still plenty of good social media can be. I think the big challenge we have right now is, is 
similar to, in some ways, the the SEO crisis that Google faced back in, 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 the, in the last decade, which is people trying to influence people on Google through black hat marketing techniques to keyword stuffing. This kind of influence um, operations and disinformation operations are just another way. They simply aren't paying companies like Facebook and Google for ad money. They're finding other ways of using their networks, which are incredibly powerful. They're designed as, as mechanisms for marketing to people, and they're using those same networks to market these slightly dangerous uh, ideologies and conspiracies to people. So it's, it's, it's similar to Black Hat SEO. It's Black Hat influence. And platforms should be interested. They're, they're economically incentivized to do something about it. But I think it's not just their problem. We, we, we need everyone uh, involved in finding the answers because even, even if, a, if, if a platform wanted to do something very tough about this, they would be incredibly sensorial, which is probably a stress too far to go. So to ensure that any enforcement is done appropriately, we need, we need multiple stakeholders involved, the public sector, the private sector, NGOs, um, the lot. And the worst thing right now is, is how much influence we, we have in our lives from Facebook. It more or less, it's now become practically the world's largest search engine because everything you want to search for, you, you now search for through Facebook. Yeah, and I think it's it's even uh, greater in some countries. And like I'm I'm in India at the moment, and in a large part of India, um, people think of the internet as WhatsApp, as Facebook, yeah. because that's their home screen. It's not Google's home, or it's not uh, a Chrome browser. It's they access the internet through WhatsApp or through Facebook. And uh, yeah, they do. They certainly have immense power, and much them kind of Google as well, and other other big platforms. But I think the the, the flip side to that is at least because because of their economics, they are going to be able to invest in threat intelligence resources and in, in various policy programs and misinformation programs. It's the second level to that. It's it's your Pinterest and your kind of other platforms that still have hundreds of millions of users. Um, they simply don't have the economic rationale for investing $10 billion into, into a trust and safety operation. Yeah. And how, 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 how do we build an ecosystem and how do we regulate an ecosystem that doesn't only regulate your Facebooks and Googles, but also your Twitters, your Pinterests, and other smaller platforms that aren't going to be able to spend tens of billions of dollars on, on, on trust and safety. And up, like we're, we're four years in from being very clear that misinformation plays a very, very important role online. Um, but we still aren't that close to a regulatory solution or a policy solution that all platforms and most democratic governments can agree to. Well, look, right now when you see Facebook, I see people on there detailing their daily lives as if it's a diary. And if Anne Frank was alive today, would her diary be a, be a Facebook profile? Because that's what it looks like to me. It's kind of scary. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Facebook is, 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 a, is, is a weird one. We, I, don't, I don't know. Me, for example, I, I don't use Facebook that much anymore. People in my immediate friend circle don't. I think it's more the, the private chat forums, chat groups. Those, yeah. those tend to be where people, um, yeah, have a lot of these personal types of uh, communications. Um, so, um, yeah, I think those 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 are the areas where you'll you'll well, obviously big platforms already have access to, which have a lot of those personal records and and those effectively are your are your diaries through your entire history of conversations you've had with people, especially in a in a in a lockdown world. Like we aren't talking to each other in person. Yeah. Even now where we're we're talking through Google Meet. So it's um yeah, it's 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 there is a digital record and digital permanence to all our lives and all our conversations today. 
you've seen in the past, with the past Google, uh, Facebook has done uh, experiments where they've controlled what your feed says to try and see how, how you, you're going to react. And I, I figured after a while that what Facebook now do is they put persona for who you are by what you post. So I've decided every so often to post clean jokes, then dirty jokes, then some of my podcast stuff I've written in the past online, article written, put them all in there. So Facebook can't determine what kind of person I am. Because the moment you think, oh, this is a nice, sweet guy, next minute, four or five really dirty jokes, then I do something else and they, they don't know what to think. <laughs> confuse, confuse the recommendation system, confuse the algorithms, yes. Yeah, that's that, what that's to do. Not really good. Because I've seen that, like, I know that, you, for example, during Brexit, there's a lot of things that people were seeing on, on their profiles that only appeal to them. So what I might see about Brexit wouldn't be what you would see, and they may personalise it. So in the end, you been told, oh, by the way, uh, this is what Brexit can, can, it can do for you, this is why you should vote yes. And you're getting the information put through there, and in the end, by the time you find out it wasn't true, or, or you, only you saw that, not your friends, the vote took taken place, and the vote was gone, and you can't change it. Yeah, I mean, it's personalization is a huge problem, and I think some platforms, it's not just personalizing it to one issue, it's entire rabbit holes that they can send you down. Yeah. Uh, this, I, I think it's, it's improved today, but it, it used to be a big criticism of the YouTube recommendation system. The related videos and Play Next uh, automated recommendations were geared towards driving people into certain types of uh, conspiratorial uh, theories and conspiratorial types of thinking. Uh, and kind of mainstream, mainstream things around mind and being an inside job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, being very, very popular uh, rabbit holes that these recommendation systems were plugging people into. I think that that's now fixed, um, and they, they're, they're dealing with that problem a, a lot better today. Uh, but I think it, it was only fixed because a, a lot of people noticed it. There was independent research around it, and we, we were working with, or the, the world was dealing with a platform or YouTube in that case, which was well-intentioned and wanted to do the right thing. I think digital access today, um, not everyone is kind of well-intentioned or incentivized only by profit. There are geopolitically uh, incentivized yeah. digital access online today um, that, yeah, we're going to have a lot trickier time getting them to adopt these resolutions. You reminds me a bit of the Matrix when they were told, you're going down a rabbit hole, take the red pill or the blue pill. And that determines what that's going to be. It's like right now, when you get an option of what rabbit hole you go down, that's going to determine the future in certain ways, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The world's a, you could, you could take it even even further. The world is a simulation. It's, it's <laughs> the sim- simulation hypothesis. We go back to Doug, Douglas Adams, when, they had, when he had basically, the world w- w- was a maze that he created from Hitchcock Guide the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. You go back that far. The way it is right now, we've got technology, yeah. and technology is guiding us certain ways. And nowadays, people are more inclined to believe technology because they think it can't, can't be bad. And then I keep thinking, well, if that's the case, how long is it before we see our own version of Skynet appearing? <laughs> um, I think that's a long way away, but again, that's a big risk of AI, right? That, that's why I, I, I was very concerned about this. I think more concerned about it maybe five years ago when very little was happening in the world of... AI ethics and algorithmic transparency and all of those things. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of big AI research centers have really made the focus things like explainability, things like AI ethics, and things like uh, even in artificial general intelligence research. There's a lot of good security and safety protocols. So I'm less worried about it than I was five years ago. But still, it, it is in a 
not it, it's a non-zero risk that exists. But tell you what's scary. I saw yesterday there was a, there was an experiment done in America called the Twenty Seven Club, and it was about artists who died when twenty seven musical artists like like uh, Jim Morrison and also Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain, and they put our algorithm together of all these guys' music and recorded new, and they wrote new songs based on these people, personalities, and etc. And then they, yeah. got, they got satellites to record it. And when you heard the music, you couldn't tell it wasn't The Doors or it wasn't Amy Winehouse, it wasn't Nirvana. They say, uh, uh, I recently found Hidden Nirvana song. And it's scary what it can do. And also I've seen it in the past where they've managed to have AI control what you say so they can, they can make a video of maybe Barack Obama something he, he didn't say and you think it's him. That's kind of scary. Yeah, the synthetic content. I think... Yeah. It's, we don't see an awful lot of that online today. We see a bit, uh, like m- most of it is in the porn industry and they, they've kind of pioneered deep fakes over the last 10-ish years. Yeah. But even, even in geopolitical context, I think when it comes out, platforms have strict policies against it. But it, it affects kind of individuals more. I think there was this case a couple of years ago where a synthetic audio clip was played to a bank in, um, in um, was it Deutsche Bank? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it was a German bank. Um and they ended up transferring half a million out of that business's account because they used audio, audio authentication. And, um, yeah, this was simply a deepfake. That was just an audio. You didn't even need the person's face. And it was able to wire out money from people's accounts and stuff. So it's a big security thing for us to be aware of. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where the, the technology there wasn't, wasn't meant for bad, wasn't meant for misuse. Kind of, I think the original researchers who worked on this one of their grandparents, uh, they, 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 they were Holocaust survivors and they wanted to kind of immortalize their their, their memories, etc., in, in, in the form of video. And that's where this reset strain started. Yeah. But again, who would have thought it's, it's going to then be applied to all, all, all these use cases? Some of them still good today. Kind of, it, it's still using good cases in, in, in healthcare, I believe. Uh, but in, yeah, there's still so many cases of abuse in, in various industries. I remember about. 20 years ago, or less than that, there was a movie, I think, to mock people with, uh, it was a movie that had, that had Jude Law and Andy Jolly, and the, bad, the, the baddie was played by Lawrence Olivier, who long since died, but it managed to recreate likeness and voice and use that in that, and it looked very, very well. Now, if they can do that in, in, in movie 20 or so years ago, think what they, what, what they can do now with technology they've got now. That scares me. Absolutely. I think the big challenge in deepfakes is it's, it's, it's just become cheaper. So it's basically that Hollywood studio uh, software that would have cost millions of dollars, now you're able to do for $2. So that, that, that's what makes it risky for the average Joe. It's like, yeah, anyone who wants to even even, even play a prank uh, or do something more malicious to you, yeah. then you spend a couple of dollars and create a reasonably high-quality deepfake of uh, if, you if, if, if uh, that most people in the world would believe. And I can see in future Hollywood making a movie and maybe a sequel to Casablanca. And they were paying the, the relatives of, of people like Henry Bogart and Inger Bergman money so they could use a likeness in, in the new movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's this hybrid world of kind of, especially AI in the creative sector is super interesting because it started like the, there are the, the deepfake cases where there's music that's created to sound like certain. Um, characters and certain personalities, uh, but there's now completely novel music that's being produced by uh, AI as well, which is which is quite quite interesting. It's because like again, five ten years ago, 
people used to spot it that and say, hey, yeah, but AI is never going to be super creative. It's not going to come up with its own songs, but it is today. It is. So, um, yeah, we, we live in an, in an age of accelerating use of these, these kind of technologies. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to lead us into a lot of dangerous areas, but we need to, there's still a lot of good that can come up, come from it. And I'm generally optimistic of what's, what's possible, but not like we need to ensure that we're not complacent because there are so many potential use cases where these technologies can be abused. We need to find ways of safeguarding society's interests. Yeah, and just think one day, will there be a top 10 musical chart of AI music? That's... <laughs> it, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> taste, taste might change. Kids, kids might be more into AI music in five, ten years' time. Who knows? Yeah, because I remember year, about 20 or so years ago, the big thing then was making music in, in, in your own bedroom and releasing it as a, a, as a single... Another thing that could be just done by AI, you get your computer and you just program it to do something and it does it all for you. So you, you do nothing and all it says is head programmer was was Lyric Jane and that's about it and nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. Or it, it might even go down like a slightly different route. It might be, there might still be Taylor Swift who releases a track, but an AI personalizes it for my ears, especially your ears. Uh, so there's, there's, yeah, there's all kinds of use cases that are possible. Um, but yeah, there might also be the extreme end where AI does 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 a lot of the music from scratch. But I think a lot of the reason why we buy into create the creative sector is more the story behind the people and the artists, and more than more than the actual kind of visible or auditory product. So yeah. I don't know if AI is going to be able to replace that charm. Maybe not, but it might be a time when basically half the world is, is basically a robots doing the job we don't want to do. Like we had maybe fifty years ago, there were certain jobs people wouldn't do. Like I don't want to be a cleaner. So they give it to somebody else. And now you've got a job that's very mundane data work you don't do. You give it to a robot. And suddenly they're doing all this kind of work and you're left either doing work that they can't do yet or you're left unemployed because of that. Yeah, like the thing that robots and AI is really bad at is, is our fingers. Like we have incredible dexterity. So that's, that's, the, only, that, that's the huge bit of utility we bring that... Um, yeah, I, 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 I think there's a utopia that's possible where none of us have to do anything that we don't want to. Yeah. But there's a dystopia that's possible as well where we get replaced by AI and all that. So but I think, yeah, we need to build build towards a utopia because no one wants to do what they don't want to do. But as if people are allowed to explore their passions, be creative, innovate, there's, there's still so many huge problem areas uh, that, that haven't, haven't been solved in the world. So if, if we had... 7 billion people focused on solving those problems, we'd, we'd get to Utopia quicker. And also, we've got to be, keep an eye on what uh, Elon Musk is doing with, with, with his brain chips as well. <laughs> yes, uh, Elon is up to, is up to a lot. Um, uh, yes, Neuralink. Interesting, interesting as a, as a concept. I think, again, the initial use cases of that are, are going to be very uh, exciting. Um, I think use, for, for, for people with um, motor neuron disease and kind of physical uh, disabilities, uh, to be able to give them limb control and things like that is, is super impactful short-term work. But I think, yeah, long-term, again, that, that the whole point is, if, I believe his, his motivation for building is, is, is the equivalent of kind of a a hive, hive mind and kind of connecting people up to the to the internet because his his analogy I believe is where we're low bandwidth creatures we're restricted by our fingers uh, so we only have ten things that we can interface with the internet with and our eyes but um, Neuralink not its current generation but future generation should be able to allow us to 
speak to each other a lot quickly, access a lot more information a lot quickly, which again, in, in theories is great. Um, but again, could be risky. Yeah, it reminds me of the Stephen King novel and the movie Lawnmower Man, where a guy with limited capabilities was suddenly got the ability to do what he wanted and it changed the world for, for the worse. So you don't know what's going to happen next. Could have a scenario where in 40 years' time you want to become a pilot, you go and download a chip and then, then suddenly you can fly a plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, well, we we're already cyborgs. We're, we're addicted to our devices, so uh, I don't think a chip plant in our brain is that much, that much of a fed leap. <laughs> no, I don't. I do, I do agree. But the thing is, there's always whenever we hear some good technology coming out, there's always a bad thing. Thing about how do we control it and make sure it's not being used for nefarious means? And that's the thing we got to think about next. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's 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 no point in kind of becoming a Luddite now and saying, you know, let's, let's smash up the internet and let's break blockchain. I think a lot of these things, like even even from the deep bay example of why the motivation behind that technologist and right now the short term of, of whatever um, Neuralink is doing, uh, it's, it's, it's always good. It always starts out from that kind of place, but it's often, it's it's hard for any creator of technology to control any, any potential uh, applications. We're getting better at it, but there's still potential for abuse. There's potential for those creators to overlook certain things um and this this is this is why kind of th these are the areas where regulators governments and civil society need to need to step in because unfortunately historically most uh technologists haven't had the greatest training in the, the social side of life in in in, in, in the arts and in social sciences in general um and perhaps that's one of the reasons um some some things get overlooked uh, over over others but I can I can definitely see that that that, that has been changing in, in the last five years. So, yeah, uh, we can we, we we need to keep going down the barrel of, of, of progress, but making sure that we don't uh, end up slipping into the the dystopian pill, whichever pill that is. Yeah, and also make sure that anyone who's developing it has some empathy, because without empathy, things yeah. will not go the way they should go. Yeah, absolutely. Again, like we we're we're. We're, we're people, we're humans, uh, we're building a society for humans to live in, so yeah, we need to optimise for the human as opposed to optimising for some some other objective criteria. And I guess also we should follow Isaac, Isaac Asimov's three, uh, uh, three rules for uh, robotics as well. <laughs> yes, what was it? Don't, don't, uh, well you can't kill uh, yeah. the human, can't you can't, human. Uh, yeah, and even if a human asks you to kill another human, you can't do that. Yeah. And what's the third one? I forgot what it was I found, uh, but yeah. <laughs> there were three things that he suggested. And to my view, they become more and more relevant now as we get more technology involved in what we're doing in everyday lives. We're going to have that so that we make sure that, that we, we still have empathy because we want to make sure that whatever's been done, they can't take over the world or they can suddenly decide, sorry, we're your masters now. You're not our master. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess on that note, I guess we've, we've covered a lot of them. We can spend hours and hours talking about this and still running around circles. Because every every day or so, technology is always changing. Like Moore's Law with the, with the uh, computer chips. Yeah. And what we've predicted, like, if you could think about it, when we first got the first iPhone about 13 years ago, 14 years ago, we didn't think it would be where they are now and what they can do now. No, absolutely not. Kind of uh, the the first uh, Apollo missions had less 
computing power than the first iPhone. Yeah. And Moore's law was one paradigm in the semiconductor industry, but we're in a different paradigm now in the AI industry. And I think the, the from a regulator and from society's point of view, we just need to adopt. We need to adapt to technology and make technology adapt to us a lot quicker, just because the rate of progress and the rate of uh, technology development is getting quicker. It's not slowing down, contrary yeah. to popular belief, where we're getting faster and faster year on year on year. So, uh, yeah, regulators often uh, are are playing catch up, and we that, that it's, it's a big gra- gap that we need to we need to bridge. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'll say thanks so much for that, Ed, yeah, and the lyric, and, and uh, have have a great day and take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.